On You Don't Know Dick, we, with the help of friends and special guests, look at the film and television career of actor Dick Miller. So, let's begin. Welcome to You Don't Know Dick, the career of actor Dick Miller. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as usual is the king of thieves, Liam O'Donnell. Liam, how are things going on in the world? We're recording this fairly closely to when this is going to be released, and you know, there's a lot going on. It's a pretty busy time. Liam, it was revealed recently that you're in the process of getting things together to move across the very country in which you live. I am. I'm moving from one time zone to another, which seems like not a big deal. But when you have a three-year-old, that hour difference sounds like uh, an actual disaster in our lives. Liam, did you know that I grew up in a place that had its own time zone? Yeah, some uh, island of mutants, I think you said. Yeah, I grew up in Newfoundland, which has its own particular time zone. So we're in the eastern time zone right now. And say it's nine o'clock here, it would be 1030 in Newfoundland. How strange is that? Very interesting. A lot of fun time zone talk at the beginning of the podcast. <laughs> wow, that's so exciting, Doug. It's so interesting. <laughs> it's what people are here for, I think, talking about the unique time zones of Canada and the United States. But Liam, I do have to say I'm very excited about your move, mostly because uh, I just like the idea of, of exciting things happening in your life. I'm pretty excited about it, too, though I do know this means you're going to make me probably have to do things a little bit later than I would be comfortable with, and I'm a little bummed on that. What is the time zone in uh, Illinois that we're talking about? Oh, it's just an hour. It's only an hour, but, you know, that can mean everything when I have to be awake on a on a Skype call with you. Liam, you have a young daughter. I do. This has become troublesome for me as your podcast partner. Why? <laughs> It just makes it a lot more difficult to schedule things. You know what? I We'll talk about this off air. Today, our guest is an editor, producer, and director of 2014's That Guy, Dick Miller. It's Elijah Drennard. Elijah, how are you doing today? Fantastic. How are you guys? Elijah, how did I do on your last name there? Drenner, is that correct? Uh, sounds good to me. All right. Elijah, it's so good to have you here with, with us. You are the director of an entire documentary about Dick Miller. That is correct. You also, you're involved with a lot of special features for Blu-rays and DVDs. Would that be accurate for me to say? I think it's pretty accurate, yes. <laughs> How did you fall into that sort of uh, a business? Because I don't know about you, Liam O'Donnell, my co-host, but I'm kind of a fiend when it comes to special features. I just devour it all, I, everything I can get. I just want to know more and more about a movie, even if I don't like the movie. So how did <laughs> that become a focus of a lot of the work that you do? Uh, well... God, that's kind of a long story. I don't know how, how what time zone are you in? How, how, how long? Does that get? <laughs> I'll um, tell you what, if it gets boring, I'll just edit parts out of it. Okay, good. Or you can just tell me to <laughs> shut up. Um, I'll give you, I'll give you the, uh, the cliff note version, I guess. Um, while I was in film school, I was um, very much into the films of, of Jack Hill. I really love Jack's mm -hmm. work. And, um, Looking across my bookshelf, I thought, why don't I have a book about Jack Hill? Where is that at? This needs to exist in the world. And a friend of mine said, you're an idiot. You're a filmmaker. Why don't you make a documentary? So <laughs> I foolishly followed his advice and uh, was going out to Los Angeles uh, to shoot interviews. No one was asking me for my college credentials. And I thought, why am I in film school? Um, everyone seems to think I'm, I'm legitimate. So um, through Jack, I met a lot of uh, people. Um, 
Roger Corman, Sid Haig, uh, Carl Shanzer. Um, and, and I wasn't just dealing with one of Jack's movies. I was dealing with all of his movies. So um, Alfred Taylor, who shot a couple of his movies, uh, Judy Brown, actress, um, many people. And that didn't really go anywhere. Um, so, but uh, <laughs> um, but what happened after I eventually moved to Los Angeles, I was just so I hadn't given up, but I, just, I had I had all these contacts that I had nothing to do, and I had this epiphany that um, Jack had gotten the rights to Spider Baby back. I shouldn't say he got the rights; he got the negative back, um, right? And she had been uh, kept away from for many decades. And I knew that um, he, I knew that he had uh, the ability to reinstate footage that was cut out and so i told him you know jack if you just put this back out again with that reinstated footage call it your director's cut you can copyright that mm -hmm. ship it around and you can hire me to do the bonus features and he said sounds like a great idea <laughs> um uh, mpi media dark sky films uh fell for it and um i've been working with them ever since um and doing stuff like that for other labels. So uh, it's been uh, crazy to think that that was 12 years ago. Uh, so <laughs> that's the story. So when you approach doing a feature-length documentary as opposed to a special feature, it, are the starting stages of it somewhat similar or are they completely different? I mean, when it comes to uh, the, the Dick Miller documentary, That Guy Dick Miller, was the idea right from the start that that was going to be feature-length? Well, it actually wasn't my idea at all. Um, mm -hmm. It was going to be um, just a little bonus feature for the German DVD release of War of the Satellites. And, oh. and, I, and I, I said to Tino Zimmerman from Subculture uh, Entertainment in Germany, um, I said, Tina, uh, Tino, it's an awesome idea, um, but you know, we can do a condensed version and it'll be fun, but he really deserves his own documentary. But uh, all right, I'll, we'll make something small. <laughs> and um, it became increasingly evident, even though I already knew it going in, that it was just way too good of an idea to be condensed to something that would, you know, maybe be 30 minutes. Because um, everyone had so much to say about him and, and Dick had so much to say. So that was the start of it, really. It was, uh, it was the original little piece was going to be called That Guy, Dick Miller. And Tino let us just drop the plan and to try to create a, a feature-length documentary. We did a Kickstarter campaign. I asked Lainey, Dick's wife, to produce it with me. Um, I didn't know her. She didn't know me. I could have gone south very quickly, but we just we trusted each other, and I knew that I didn't I couldn't do anything unless Lainey had more of an interest other than just being a talking head. I knew that you know if someone wouldn't take my phone call, they'd take her phone call, and exactly <laughs> what happened. Um, she's a she's a bull man. She will get that phone call. She will get somebody on the, and they will do it, and they did. And so really, I could not have gotten it made without Lainey. It's such a, you know, one of the things about revisiting it is that relationship at the core is such the heart and soul of it. And I'm glad that it kind of is structured to really 
focus on that. I, I don't know if that was a, a necessary part, considering how closely Lainey was involved with it. But it really does, you know, it, it, of course, makes it a little bit winsome and kind of a little bit sad to watch now, now that Dick Miller's passed away. But it also, it, you know, it leaves you with this this real feeling of kind of a complete story of what this human being was, even if you're just kind of dotting around when it comes to his whole career, it does feel like you get that complete story. And Lainey, I think, is a huge part of that. Well, Lainey is the story. I mean, she's the, mm-hmm. she's, she is the, you know, when you're, you're always looking for uh, your A story, your B story, your C story, your D story. And, you know, you talk about structure of the documentary, you know, I knew I could this was a clip movie that you could do for you know an hour straight, no problem. Mm-hmm. You could make the clip show, um, but what's the other story and what's the three act structure? What what is all this stuff? And I was editing it as we were filming it and trying to figure it out and piece it together. And um, you know, some things were most things were working, some things weren't. Um, but you know, once you discover there's something, you want to have something to kind of ping pong back and forth between you. It's like, you know, it's not just an illustrated Wikipedia entry. You want to have something else there and kind of finding that balance started off with, with the relationship with Laney and the relationship with his brothers and the relationship with his parents and mm-hmm. things like that. And that gives you that, that thing to fall back onto when, it's like, yeah, I know he's in the Terminator. I know he's in Gremlins. I know he's in Gremlins. It's like, it's like after a while, it gets monotonous. So I hope, I hope most of it came through. Yeah, most certainly. Now, uh, over the past week uh, it, of the time that we're recording this, uh, it has been the 30th anniversary of the release of Gremlins 2. And it's gotten actually a surprising amount of attention at lots of articles. There was a terrific oral history that just was released a few days ago. I think the growing interest in Gremlins 2 over the last, especially decade, has been really interesting to see. One of the things that Liam and I were talking about before we started recording was the kind of, of shift in terms of, at least among the real movie nerds that we spend a lot of time with, in terms of which they prefer, whether it's Gremlins or Gremlins 2. And Elijah, since we're on that topic, do you have a preference between these two movies? Well, that's a good question because I was thinking about that. And, you know, I I was aware of Gremlins when it came out, but I didn't see it until a little bit later. Um, But Gremlins 2, for whatever reason, I think I saw two or three times in the theater. Mm. And... Uh, I had I had seen Gremlins. I was consciously aware of of Joe Dante, and I think with Gremlins too, I there was a sort of epiphany that whoever made this or the people who made this want to see if I'm paying attention because there's a lot going on in this movie, and that's really I think if you were to kind of paint a broad stroke. Uh, way of of talking about Joe's movies is that he's always getting away with something. There's always something mischievous Mm -hmm. about his work. And, and gremlins too, just felt like he just got away with something. Sure. You want to break the film midway through and put up little silhouettes of fine, fine, fine. Just do it. Just do your thing. And that's what I love about gremlins too, more so than gremlins one. So if I had to, you know, choose one from a burning fire, uh, a house on fire. I guess it would probably be Gremlins too. 
Uh, Liam, I want to throw the same uh, question over to you. Before I do that, I just want to throw my own opinion out there, which is that, especially on this revisit of the first Gremlins, I have so much more appreciation for uh, its structure and the fact that it's such a tight, mean-spirited movie, especially with that Capra-esque, you know, uh, scene or the uh, location that it all takes place in. But the fact that it's so... Uh, wacky in terms of how mean it is to some of the characters is something that I appreciate a lot more as an adult than I ever did as a kid. Uh, I think I love Gremlins 2, but I <laughs> I still think maybe Gremlins is a better movie-watching experience. But boy, I, I tell you, I think I like both of them in, in just about as much in different ways. Liam, what do you think about this movie? I mean, I love it. I love Gremlins. I love Gremlins 2, but I love them in different ways. And it's honestly been a while since I've watched Gremlins 2. Um, and so when it came out, I was pretty stoked on it. I rewatched it a bunch uh, later in life, but I just find myself going back to Gremlins more. I just think there's just something about its structure and about the sort of cohesive uh, thing that it is that appeals to me more. And honestly, I mean, uh, Elijah, what you were saying about uh, Joe Dante getting away with something on Gremlins 2, I don't know. I kind of think he's always getting away with something. And I feel like <laughs> Gremlins is like, I, we're used to it now. It's sort of one of those things where, like, now I watch it and it's like, yeah, it makes sense, whatever. But when you really think about it, like, yo, this had to fuck some people up. Like, this is like the meanest, <laughs> cruelest movie that kids watched, maybe like ever, you know? So I, I don't know. It, there's, I think there's just something about it that is also subversive. Uh, but then again, it's been at least five years since I've watched Gremlins 2. So maybe I'll rewatch it coming up soon and be like oh wait no i'm wrong gremlins 2 is better i don't know i mean people and we're obviously going to talk about gremlins in just a just a little bit but for those who didn't experience the 1980s it's hard to overstate how much of a phenomenon gremlins was i mean i had the sticker books and i had the coloring books i mean this thing was marketed heavily to children (laughs) and you're right you're right liam there were probably a lot of kids you know uh maybe not getting into it on uh in the in the theater though it obviously did very well there but uh certainly boy it was a movie i watched endlessly on vhs and uh, i guess that kind of explains how we turned out the way that we turned out doug i mean you know how weird this story is because i was also obsessed with gremlins and i watched it over and over again and i saw gremlins 2 in the theater because i was so obsessed with gremlins <laughs> that my mom took me and then i wasn't until my uh early 30s that my mom was like oh yeah you know this joe dante guy right i went to college with him and i was like <laughs> he directed gremlins Bob." she's like oh he did Oh, you like that movie? I'm like, yeah, I love that movie. How do you, you knew the guy? And it was this whole thing. Wow. <laughs> yeah, they both went to Philadelphia College of Art. Yeah, and uh, Liam, uh, listeners of this show might know that I have sometimes, uh, you know, just I just threw out a theory, Liam, that maybe when your mother was going to college, or maybe a college reunion in like 1979, and she and Joe Dante maybe oh, they. Got together and had a little fun, and maybe uh, nine months later, out came Liam O'Donnell. You're the worst ever. <laughs> Elijah, I'm not sure necessarily how how responsible you are for the choice of the subjects of a lot of the work that you do, or if a lot of it is someone asks you to do a special feature based on someone. But knowing that you started with Jack Hill, that you've done work on people like Joe D'Alessandro and Rudy Ray Moore and Dick Miller, these are kind of really individualistic kind of characters in show business. Is there something that attracts you to people like that? Um, 
Well, naturally. I mean, I, I, I know who those people are and I am fans <laughs> of them, but there's probably more of them out there that I just haven't had the opportunity. So, um, you know, both, <laughs> both Rudy and Joe were um, very uh, special instances where I, I uh, they both have stories that preceded the, how, how I got involved with making some stuff about them sure. and them. Um, so, you know, I don't, I would say that I, I choose about 10% of what I actually do. Most of it just falls in my lap or comes my way. And I, I, uh, I say, I say yes to everything. Uh, well, most everything. And, um, yeah, I mean, there's just, I don't know if that answers your question or not, but there's just, uh, there, there's just a lot of, uh, there's a lot of variables involved with stuff like this. <laughs> When it comes to working on the documentary about Dick Miller, it, it one of the things that really comes through, and you can even, I think it's your voice that you hear sometimes asking some of these questions directly to uh, to, to Dick in his own home. Mm-hmm. Um, it really felt like you were being kind of pulled in to this structure that they had. Did you have a feeling of that when you were making it, that you were not necessarily part of the family, but certainly because... You know, you had his wife who was helping with the making of it, who was doing a lot of this call, the calls and things like that. How how close did you feel within that structure when you were making it? Well, that's a good question. You know, it's it's very intimate. It was often just myself and L. Schneider, the cinematographer, and um, you know, Dick and Lainey are very welcoming, and it, it they feel like family right away and and i guess i just put the camera where it felt natural um sometimes the only place you could put it um <laughs> and i i don't know I, I i can't be that objective about it but if it if it if it is the way you described it then i guess that was the uh that was the whole idea um you know I, I I wanted people <laughs> to feel like what it was like to go to Dick and Laney's house. <laughs> I really did. I don't know. And and I wanted you to see the house. And I wanted you to see all the little, little details. I mean, we shot more than what we did. Um, and it was weird, you know, looking at it when I was editing it. Um, there are lots of cats in the frame. I, I don't know, like, um, both intentional and, and unintentional and... And I remember at one point we were shooting the last interview with Lainey in the kitchen because uh, that was the only spot we hadn't shot in. And they had this little happy face, like light up little nightlight for the kitchen. I was going to take it out. And I thought, no, that's just like the howling. They have all those little happy faces all over the house. I'm just going to leave it right there and we'll see if anyone notices. Um, <laughs> but yeah, cats everywhere. Um, and uh their place just felt like it does in the movie. I mean, I haven't looked at it for a long time, but you know, we went back and shot stuff with Dick and Laney for the bucket of blood, uh, Blu-ray, um, mm. a couple years ago and, and nothing had changed. Oh, the couch had changed. That was about it. And, you know, we start the documentary off, uh, with Dick watching the Terminator and that was directly, 
inspired by uh, being over at his place on Thanksgiving. We were uh, doing things, uh, making the table or whatever, and the Terminator was on. <laughs> and and, um, and uh, then Dick's scene turn, comes on, and he says, everybody, everybody quiet, everybody quiet. And he just turns it up to, you know, from 75 to 100, and just <laughs> blares it and just plays his scene. Everything stops. We watch the scene. He's like, "All right." He gets shot, and he's like, "All right, everybody, back, back to the, back to dressing the table." <laughs> and, um, and that's that's where I thought of the opening because I had no idea for the longest time how it was going to start, and uh, that was the, that was the idea. You know, Elijah, Liam and I have been doing a podcast about Eric Roberts, the actor, for a number of years yeah. now. Uh, <laughs> uh, and it's uh, it's been a unique experience. It's It's got us on stage with him, and, and we developed a relationship with the man himself. One of the things about doing a podcast about Eric Roberts is, and Elijah, I don't know if you know this, but I probably, I'm guessing that you probably do, is he makes a lot of garbage. He just makes a lot of terrible movies. It's not his fault. He's a working actor, and that just is how a working actor works sometimes. But one of the nice things about recording about Dick Miller, and I'm not going to say that every Dick Miller movie is perfect, but I will say, and especially if this is something that a big spotlight is put on w watching your film, is that he, the breadth of his work, there's so much interesting material around it. Even if the movie itself might not be a great movie uh, you know, to, to watch or might not be entertaining start to finish – there's such a warmth around him as an actor, and especially because of the families that kind of uh, came along with him throughout the, the length yeah. of his career. Yeah. It makes it a lot more interesting to kind of dart around and look at some of these projects in a little more detail. Yeah, and, and a lot of that warmth comes from just what you said, the, the directors who routinely hired him. And they all kind of grew up with him. You know, they watched mm -hmm. him. So he was, he was kind of like... He is to you guys, and probably before uh, you're with myself. Um, he felt like family even before you met him. So it, it doesn't, um, it's not surprising that when you go to his house, um, you know, the tchotchkes are a little dusty. Uh, <laughs> right. There's, there's a litter box in the bathroom. I mean, it just it feels like you're at someone in your family. Uh, it just feels like home. Hey, now, uh... before. Hey, Elijah, yes. I had a quick question for you. Uh, Doug mentioned our Eric Roberts podcast. And as as you can imagine, one of the things about having an Eric Roberts podcast is that um, there's so much material that sometimes the idea of choosing something is like overwhelming, you know, and, and I found myself thinking, like, if we were going to make uh, a movie like this about Eric Roberts, it would be really hard because I wouldn't know what to include and what to leave out. <laughs> Yeah. You know, and so I found myself thinking, like, um, did you feel like you had to make sure you included as much as you could? Or did you feel like, well, as long as I hit on the things that are sort of important aspects, you know, because uh, granted, you know, the, the, it's not quite as much as Eric, who, who's gotten up to doing like 30 or 40 movies a year. But it's still a lot of stuff that Dick Miller was in. And and I didn't know how much pressure you felt like I have to make sure I get as much in as possible. Well, yeah, I mean, you do try to, you want to include everything. You want to feel like you did your due diligence and, and you, you got that clip from uh, Divorce Court. In right. There. Um, <laughs> even if it's just for a second. And you, you, you know, you're kind of going back to the, the structure. Um, what's good about Dick's career is that he really um, 
crescendos really in the 80s and and from then on he's just go 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 i mean he was mm-hmm. non-stop yeah. and so it becomes a little monotonous and so there is that just that very quick little montage um i think where robert forrester's talking about his work where you're just kind of going through year by year and you're just showing a bunch of little clips and you don't need to see all the details but you know that the man is working and um, I think doing little things like that is shorthand for just showing uh, the, the scope of his work. But no, I mean, we, we skipped stuff. I mean, we had to skip stuff. Um, yeah. uh, there was just no way. Or you you include it out of historical context. You just put it in the beginning. Like, you know, we weren't going to get James Cameron to do his interview about hiring Dick Miller for The Terminator. Um, he I don't even know if James Cameron was frankly responsible for it. Probably not. Mm. I think it was Gail Ann Hurd because uh, she had produced, um, I think, Smokey Bites the Dust, which Dick was in. And uh, she came out of really as a producer through Corman, uh, more so than just James Cameron doing, I think, some effects work. But right. I think it was probably Gail and not James. And so um, just get that Terminator clip out of the way as fast as possible. And it's a great way that everybody knows the Terminator. You don't have to tell anybody anything. Even if they haven't seen the movie, they know who Arnold Schwarzenegger is. So it's a good way to start it. So things like that, I think, um, are ways of including it with, uh, uh, without going into too much detail. Mm. And there's kind of a shorthand too of, of like you know Dick Miller did a lot of TV work and yes. it, it's not that it's not interesting but you can just touch on with a few clips and I'm glad that you did have a little time to focus on that Deep Space Nine episode which I really love oh. and I yeah just just absolutely. yeah just just glad that it, it got a little bit of attention because some things deserve a little bit more of attention yeah you know, before that was one of them I, you know I I was never a Star Trek fan and um but a lot of it had to do with um with Ira. Uh, Bear, who who wrote that episode, and um, had we not interviewed him, and I understood the uh, importance of that, that I I probably would have glossed over it, frankly. Before we hit our break, and before we get into talking about our feature today, Gremlins, I do want to ask you. I guess this is just probably a question that you get asked quite a bit, but it's something that I imagine we're going to lay on a lot of our guests, which is that is. They're a favorite Dick Miller performance of yours. I mean, there's there's the favorite Dick Miller movies and there's favorite Dick Miller performances. Sure. Yes. Um, you know, I really, uh, boy, um, he has a really great performance in Explorers. Uh, it was cut mm. down uh, considerably, but you know, you really see that he was a, a man capable of uh, of wider range with that uh, performance. Um, but I think favorite performance and favorite movie would be Bucket of Blood. I mean, I, I really think that uh, <laughs> that it's almost the perfect movie. Um, yeah, I don't know how much more you can say about it, but it's a great movie and great performance. One of the things I love about your documentary is how people are like, yeah. you know, that's not Dick Miller that you see in that movie. That's an actual performance, right? Sometimes you see these kind of gruff characters that he plays, and they seem, you know, pretty close to the real person that you see in the interviews that you did with him. But one of the things that makes A Bucket of Blood such an interesting movie is not only its structure and its humor, but that you see Dick Miller as a star that that's someone who could carry a movie. And it's one of the, you know... Uh, 
question marks that are left now that you see the kind of breadth of his career that if maybe he did take that lead role in the little shop of horrors and maybe you know he could find a niche that maybe not like a jack nicholson necessarily did but you know the an interesting looking actor that might be able to take a few more lead roles what that could have what we could have seen from him uh if he had to kind of push himself a little more in terms of some of those acting roles yeah, but it wouldn't have happened with Little Shop of Horrors. I mean, that, that thing wasn't going to uh, break him. I mean, with all due respect, I mean, you know, Dick had, uh, he had a lot of conviction and he was uh, a stand-up guy. And, you know, he looked at the script, he's like, I've done this already. I'm not going to mm-hmm. do this again. Um, this is the same thing. And he was someone who uh, did not like to repeat himself especially verbally. I mean, getting him to say things more than once. Um, you know, I remember some of the criticism for the documentary was that there's not enough dick in it. And I'm like, man, this is a guy who does not volunteer any information. And speaking of, you know, the common commentary tracks for Gremlins and Gremlins 2, Dick is on them, but he does not say anything. <laughs> so getting him to speak... Um, about the stories he's told more than once, he doesn't want to do it more than once. Um, and he's he's more interested in the next job, the next thing. And, and he was really, at that time, he was more interested in, in screenwriting. So, Yeah. I mean, it's, it's something that also gets across very, uh, very well in the documentary. Eventually, we're going to have to watch that Jerry Lewis movie, uh, which I, to be honest, and I thought I knew quite a bit about Dick Miller's career. That one took me by surprise. Yeah. That, that was even out there. Yeah, it's a weird movie, too. I mean, it's not if you're I'd say the casual Jerry Lewis fan should kind of put that towards the bottom of their watch list because it's <laughs> it's not going to win over anybody at, at all. And it's 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 hard to watch. Um, and I don't know how to, you know, put it exactly into words, but it is not uh, a typical movie at all. <laughs> I mean, I had a hard time watching it. Yeah, I'm the kind of person that just, that just hearing you say that makes me more and more curious about watching it now. <laughs> uh, let's take our first break. When we come back, we're going to talk about, well, maybe not one of Dick Miller's largest performances, but certainly one of his more recognizable. It's 1984's Gremlins. Join us right after this. <laughs> hey, Billy, what's the matter? You need a jump? Oh, no, thanks, Mr. Futterman. Whew. I'm pretty much late for work as it is. These goddamn foreign cars, they always freeze up on you. You don't find American machinery doing that. Our stuff can take anything. See that plow? 15 years old. Hasn't given me a day's trouble in 15 years. You know why? Kentucky Harvester. This ain't some farm piece of crap you pick up these days. That's a Kentucky Harvester. Hmm. Well, if I want to keep my job, I really think I should be going now. Hey, how's that uh, comic strip of yours coming? I expect to see you in the funnies any day now with Smiling Jack and Little Abner. Oh, well, Mr. Futterman, they don't run those comics anymore. They don't? Uh. Come on, Barn. Well, say hello to your wife for me, okay? Yeah, sure. See you later. So long, Billy. Goddamn foreign cars. A boy inadvertently breaks three important rules concerning his new pet and unleashes a horde of malevolently mischievous monsters on a small town. It's 1984's Gremlins, directed by Joe Dante and written, of course, by Chris 
Columbus. Uh, this is a movie that I imagine everyone listening right now is familiar with, uh, even if you're not interested in the life and career of Dick Miller, which of course you should be, especially if you're listening to this podcast. You probably uh, have some knowledge about this movie because at one time in the 80s, as I mentioned before the break, it was a phenomenon. It was something that everyone knew about. And also, I mean, it's something that you still hear about, if not in regards to nostalgia-based marketing. There's always been that talk in the background of a potential remake or follow-up or whatever, just something to always, <laughs> always get at the under the skin of people who uh, really hold these things very dear, and I think rightfully so. Uh, this is a movie that um, you know it kind of of uh, kicked off a uh, string of films in the 1980s involving little creatures running around and causing a lot of damage, uh, and you can kind of see that whole evolution if you end up watching films like Hobgoblins or uh, Ghoulies, or well, honestly, the list goes on and on. I want to start with our guest today. Now, Elijah, you've already really talked about uh, your preference in regards to Gremlins and Gremlins 2. But one thing I wanted to ask you is, do you remember the very first time that you saw Gremlins? I really don't. But I, I do remember being aware of the marketing campaign because mm -hmm. this was something, you know, times have changed <laughs> and you could really... Uh, sell mystery and you can't mm. do that anymore. And I remember, first of all, I remember the cereal and I remember the commercials for the cereal. <laughs> you know, it was just that, you know, a, a mogwai shaped Captain Crunch. That's all it was. It was nothing special. <laughs> but I remember the mystery of, well, if that's a mogwai, then what's a gremlin? <laughs> and what, what are those pod things? So like there was that, that was the mystery that kind of lured me in. And it wasn't until, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, maybe five or 10 years later that I finally saw the movie, you know, either on HBO or VHS or something. But, um, <laughs> you know, I was, uh, that was the same year, by the way, I think we all know as, as Ghostbusters and that one got more of my attention. Um, but I think, you know, in retrospect, I prefer gremlins uh, now over Ghostbusters, but, um, I, I don't remember actually when I when I first saw it, but I do remember when I first saw Gremlins too. It's it's interesting that the odd elements of Gremlins, like the rules and like the uh, the kind of cocoon nature of the Mogwais into the Gremlins, that's something you kind of got grandfathered into if you grew up in the '80s, even if you didn't see it when it came out, because the talk about it was everywhere. It just we kind of entered the culture, and I watched this with my wife. Um, just a couple of days ago, and she uh, she sort of was was raised in a cave. She just did not <laughs> get exposed to a lot of the the, the usual pop culturally culturally things in the eighties. So she's sitting there next to me, and she's like, "What are these rules? What are, what are they even talking about?" And of course, she's asking all those questions that they try to <laughs> to make fun of in right. the sequel. But also, just like the idea, it's like like you were saying. So. He's a Mogwai, and his name is Gizmo, and he turns into like she just it never it had never reached inside of her bubble uh, exactly how this thing worked. So I got to see kind of for the first time. You know what? This is really strange that 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 this even that he, this even worked on an audience that they were able to accept it. I think uh, it, I was watching actually maybe it might have been in that oral history where Joe Dante was like, "You just establish it early when people are still on board, and as long as you establish it early, people will go along with it for the rest of it." And I guess. I guess he's right. That's, Liam oh, yeah. yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's like, you know, once you you set the rules and you gotta follow the rules and, and the audience will follow anything. 
<laughs> Especially if they trust that you are going to follow those rules, exactly. right? If you... <laughs> uh, Liam O'Donnell, uh, as you mentioned before, you're a child of the 80s. Uh, you love the 1980s. You, te- you keep telling me you wish you were back in the 1980s. Is that true, Liam O'Donnell? No. No, you don't actually like the 80s very much. But you do like the movie Gremlins directed by Joe Dante. Am I right about that part at least? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? What's so great about this movie that people keep talking about? I mean... <clears throat> I mean, I think that's a very good question because it's not there's a a lot about the movie that is kind of corny now. Um, And so, like, when I was watching it, I I was somehow realizing things that never occurred to me quite before or or, or if they had, they hadn't really stuck with me. So one of the things was um, and this isn't the only movie to do it, but uh, I've never been in a Chinatown like the Chinatown in in an 80s movie, like like (laughs) Chinatown in an 80s movie is like. Uh, it's it like it shipped. Yeah, well, it's like <laughs> Hong Kong in 1945, but it's 1980, whatever. And I'm always yeah. watching it, thinking, uh, Chinatown just has more Chinese lettering in it and different restaurants. It's really not that another <laughs> world, you know. It's like not anything. I mean, and I've been in like you know a bunch of different China. I've never seen anything like yours. Uh, but even some of the humor in the movie is a little corny and stuff. And so it's like, what is the appeal here? And I think it's a as much as in uh, uh, the documentary, they talk about how much they hated the puppets. The puppets are endearing, man. The puppet works. It, it works top <laughs> to bottom. Uh, there, there's no part where I'm like, this is stupid puppets. Like every moment with the puppets, I'm enchanted. Uh, the movie is unapologetically mean while still being somehow good natured at the same time. When she talks about her dad dying, <laughs> that is a that is a that is a tough sell, my man. And it works. Like it it just plays. And I, I don't know, there's just something about this combo of like um like you said, Doug, the Norman Rockwellish nature of this town with this sudden uh explosion of violence that like it just really works. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's a few themes like that, that probably still appeal now, like mean rich people, you know, uh, yeah. not living in a world where just cause it's Christmas doesn't mean anyone cares about you. Like those aspects still, still appeal. Um, and then other parts are like, does anyone even care anymore? Like when Gizmo's driving the Barbie car, when I was a kid, that was the coolest fucking thing that could have possibly happened. Like, when I saw that, I was like, well, this is the best movie that could ever exist in the history of man. And watching it now, I'm like, do kids even care about a Barbie car? Anymore? Like, like I, it, it's so far from the moment we're in, and yet I bet most kids would still think that was pretty cool. Yeah, I think enchanting is a really good word to describe it, actually. It really does kind of – and part of that, I think it might be the way that Joe Dante, especially in his 80s and, and a part of the 90s as well, his work, it really captures something – a very childlike appreciation and love for movies. I know that that's something that's mentioned in the documentary as well, that his movies are kind of about the love of movies and about the love of making movies. And that is something that – because that's so much entrenched in the DNA of movies like this and Explorers and Matinee and, you know, all of his movies and The Burbs uh, and The Howling, certainly, that you really get, uh, as you grow up with these movies, you can keep returning to them and getting a different uh, appreciation for different elements of it. And I, I feel like even though this is a movie that's tinged with nostalgia in a way that a lot of 1980s movies are for people who grew up 
in them. I do feel like that when I watch it, I'm appreciating it on a level that's not entirely nostalgia, but I also recognize that I might have those blinders on. Uh, Elijah, do you feel like when you're watching some 80s movies that sometimes it's hard to even distinguish whether they're of a, of a high quality or not simply because you connect them with parts of your childhood? Yeah, you know, I'm not overly nostalgic. I, I don't really wish I was... Um, you know, eight years old again. <laughs> uh, but I, I understand the feeling that people have when they watch these things. And, um, you know, it's funny, you know, thinking about all these movies again and and that era and really what separates it from the stuff now, um, I think part of the nostalgia, or I should say part of the, um, the charm of these movies we're talking about, especially Gremlins and, and the stuff that Dante did after that is, the other thread that runs through this, I think, is all the Jerry Goldsmith soundtracks because yes. Jerry Goldsmith's music, you know, I, I was never a huge Spielberg fan. And because of that, I was never a huge John Williams fan. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people have the sort of wistful um, uh, sort of fantasy ideas about you know, like the ET theme and things like that, which kind of give me uncomfortable goosebumps. Like I don't really like that music <laughs> would be soaring over the, over the forest with ET in the basket. I, I don't really like that. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I can hear it in my head and I don't like it in my head, but I, is, it, is, it, do you, is it because you find, I'm just curious more than anything. Do you find it uh, manipulative in that? It's like, it's, I, I have to feel this way. I do. I, 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 the music is telling me how to feel. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, the gremlins theme doesn't tell me how to feel. It's just catchy and good. And, but there is a little bit of that with, you know, the gizmo theme, there, there's like a Mogwai theme that's there. It's a little bit more of a hummable kind of tune. But um, as it goes into like Explorers and, and Matinee and I mean, Interspace, I don't even think really has a theme. But the, the DNA of like John Williams and Spielberg is in there. But pushed through the pinhole of Jerry Goldsmith, it becomes something uh, better, something more unique. And I, I that to me brings up nostalgia. I, I can hear that music uh, just the same way now as when I was younger. So it, it's hard to sort of put into words um, the feeling that music gives to you. And uh, that's that's my perspective anyway. You know, having talked with Joe Dante about his relationship with Dick Miller, it, it seems like it was really close, but there must have been a pretty significant, I might be, might be wrong on this, age difference between oh, the two of them yeah. when they first started working. How, how did you... How did you gauge that relationship? Just as someone, two people with a lot of mutual respect, or did it seem to go further than that? Um, well, I mean, he was hired for Hollywood Boulevard. They named mm -hmm. him Walter Paisley. <laughs> Dick didn't really understand the joke. Um, he was subsequently called Walter Paisley in most of Joe's movies. Um, <laughs> I think it was a relationship that um, evolved naturally over time. Um, you know, I know Joe used to call Dick on his birthday, um, and I don't know when that started, but, you know, I think naturally when you are interested in films and you are maybe lucky enough to get to work with some of these people who you grew up watching, there is a sort of paternal 
relationship there. And, and it's, uh, it certainly has existed for me. It's probably existed for Joe. So I can't really say what his relationship with Dick was like. I know they were very good friends and, and uh, he put him in there everywhere, but not just Dick, you know, Robert Picardo, uh, yeah, Tom, Kevin McCarthy, uh, Belinda Belaski. Um, Joe populated his movies with his friends. He wanted to make his movies with his friends and both behind the camera and in front. So um, again, that's where I kind of like, it felt like Joe was kind of getting away with something. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, I feel like if that part wasn't written for Dick, um, it would be rewritten for someone like Dick. So <laughs> the whole movie footage that's in the documentary. Yes. I, I, I imagine that having that relationship with Laney in, in terms of the producing that helped, get that on board but how early on in the process did you know you would have access to that because that stuff is just amazing it's gold right uh you know every time i do stuff like this whether it's um a documentary or just somebody doing a, a 10 minute interview for a movie that they were the dp on i ask them what do you got what do you got <laughs> what's there and with you know that we were so um gobsmackingly lucky uh, with that guy, Dick Miller. I mean, everything always just seemed to kind of turn to our favor. Um, uh, right down to um, Dick getting hired to shoot this short film, um, you know, uh, and having it where he's resurrecting his character that was cut from right. um, uh, Pulp Fiction. You know, it gave you this sort of uh, thing you could sort of it gave us something we could be, be, begin and end the movie with, to bookend it with. Um, so finding the, the home movie footage and getting it transferred in HD uh, was just luck. Uh, my friend Michael Hegel, a good friend of mine, uh, telecined all of the footage for us, um, gave us the files, and we, you know, it was really fun. Uh, in post, we were color correcting all that footage, and Lainey was in the room with us, and uh, just watching that footage, that Kodachrome, I guess by, well, it was Kodak, though. I think it was just like Kodak Super 8. You know, that stuff really held colors. And watching that stuff come to life, she was thrilled. Did you know what you had beforehand? Had you already no. screened it? No. no. Well, no, that's not true. Actually, they did, they did do like a VHS transfer of those movies. So I did see some kind of crummy, low-grade quality stuff. Um, so I knew what was there. Um, the big thing that surprised me the most was all that footage from, um, um, the Western, uh, it changed, changed name a couple of times. I'm forgetting it's, it's one that Roger Corman started and then, um, another guy finished. I forget. I'm forgetting a time to kill. No, a time for killing. I think is what it's called time for killing. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, seeing that footage was, you know, I love that sequence. No one else really seems to care for it, but, um, I just seeing all that, um, all that amazing, footage of Glenn Camp, uh, Glenn Ford, seeing all the amazing footage of Glenn Ford and Harry Dean Stanton. And I mean, that was just, it was awesome. It was so fucking cool. <laughs> it, I mean, it, that's it. It's really fucking cool. And also, you know, especially again, going back to the kind of linchpin of the documentary of being this relationship, knowing that this was their quote unquote honeymoon. And yeah. probably that's why there is so much more footage of it. I mean, it really, it, it, it I think that stuff is, 
I mean, the thought that that was out there in the world and no one had seen it previously, it's just one of the most amazing things about watching this. Yeah, I mean, I feel the same way. And I, you know, maybe that scene was a little, that sequence was a little too long, but, you know, you're, you're always looking for conflict. You know, there's not a lot of, there's no, there's no dark side to Dick Miller. You know, there's no, he doesn't have any uh, skeletons in the closet. He has no demons. And so you're looking for some kind of conflict. And once we found out that he was, making this movie and Roger Corman was fired from it and it was finished by someone else. And Roger, I asked him about the movie and he refused to talk about it. So I figured um, yeah, it's amazing that you say that. Cause I, when I'm watching it, I'm like, he, he's got Roger Corman. How come Roger's not talking about this? There's yeah, gotta be a reason. He was just like, uh, next question, please. Uh, next question. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, he, there was something to talk about there. And it is interesting because I'm, I have this theory that that movie was what was really responsible for uh, Roger Corman going out on his own and oh, really right. being, you know, he talks about the trip and wild angels, but I think that thing is bullshit. I think it was uh, <laughs> time for killing because, you know, he was trying to make movies inexpensively and he was fired for not using what the studio had given to him and um and he got fired for it he, he was trying to do something sensible and that wasn't working and, and i think that movie was really the movie that was responsible for him to really break out on his own interesting interesting also that it's still it still must be somewhat of a sore spot considering you know everything that he did afterwards i mean and that kind of just leads credence to your theory it's obviously was something that was very motivating for him yeah of course i mean you know i think it was done the same year as um saint valentine's day massacre which he was making mm -hmm. fox at that time and you know he would and also roger you know we were i've, I've read some articles i mean he was trying he thought he was going to be a big studio director he thought he was going to enter it and he was going to use what he learned on low budget movies and, and revolutionize Hollywood. And they turned their backs on him. They fired him. And he said, fuck them. I'll, I'll beat them at their own game. That's what I think. I think, <laughs> you know, I've read his biography, which is great. You know, he's, he, we write our own histories and I don't think there's any shame in um, embracing the fact that he was fired. But he didn't want to talk about it. So, I wonder then if like him taking control and then making uh, von Richthofen and, and Brown a few years later, mm -hmm. and knowing that that didn't you know didn't set the world on fire either, even though he was obviously very passionate about it. I yeah. wonder if that also led to him retreating a little bit into more reliable, low budget fare. Absolutely, I think it was. I mean, he you know von Richthofen and Brown would have been a great movie for MGM or Warner Brothers or, or Columbia <laughs> had he not been fired from that movie. I mean, it, it probably could have made that type of movie um, for a major studio. Absolutely. Liam, going back to Joe Dante for a second. Look, you grew up right around the same time as I did. I imagine that you still hold a lot of love for those uh, Joe Dante movies of the 1980s. I know we're here to talk about Gremlins. Obviously, we're going all over the place because the fact is people listening to this are probably already intimately familiar with Gremlins. Is there another one of Joe Dante's movies that you feel like deserves more attention? Well, the obvious answer for me is The Burbs, although sometimes it feels like people do talk about The Burbs a lot, but that's really just like, I feel like, film Twitter. Like, friends I have who are normal humans 
if I talk to them about Joe Dante, the you know I can get Gremlins and Gremlins Two. Uh, sometimes people might be stoked on some of his '90s stuff, but it's weird how widely forgotten The Burbs is. You know, a movie with Tom Hanks in it. You think like you know, and 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 Corey Feldman. You know, like you think people would would know about this thing, but I, I regularly uh, encounter people who either have never heard of it or who remember it from like cable as a kid, right. but kind of have forgotten about it since. Uh, and and don't get me wrong, you know, I, if it wasn't for the video store, I wouldn't know Burbs either. I didn't see it in the theaters. I, I think I was probably too young. Um, I, I discovered it in the video store later, but that's a movie that once I rented it and saw it, that was a regular rotation movie. That's a movie that is like a key part of my of my uh, film fanhood as a child. So, yeah, I think more people should see the Burbs and, and give it a chance if they haven't. It, when you're distanced from like the financial side of movie making like as a kid right i i remember as a kid i'd watch crawl and i'd watch star wars and to me they were just the same thing right i didn't realize right. that one was this big bomb and one is this like to me it's like those are just movies that i watched as a kid so the burbs was one of those movies right it was just one of those movies that i watched a ton as a kid probably because it was on cable probably because it was available on v on vhs so the idea that everyone doesn't know about it it still kind of throws me for a loop uh, but I see exactly what you're saying. And that's a movie that also I think I gained a better appreciation for as I got a little older. And speaking of that, the movie that I probably I would answer with would be Matinee, which is a movie that I know Joe Dante has a very kind of personal feeling towards. But I also think that's just an incredibly entertaining movie. Uh, one of the nice things about the documentary is getting to see John Sayles talk about uh, <laughs> his, his his acting performance in that. Uh, I find John Sayles such an interesting character uh when he's talking about his movies but just to hear him talk about you know getting paired up i loved i love how you show their work together by having that photo with john sales head just cut off at the chin <laughs> that was laney's uh photography there that was uh i mean it was it was the perfect punchline to uh, uh illustrate their height difference i mean <laughs> the picture you don't have to say anything the picture says it all uh, let's talk about uh, the character of Murray Futterman in Gremlins. He's a uh, gruff. <laughs> I guess that's the word I use most often when it comes to a lot of Dick Miller performances, but very lovable character in the movie. Someone who has obviously uh, fallen on somewhat hard times because of, as you were referring to, Liam, uh, there is a uh, undercurrent in the movie of uh, these wealthy people being absolutely terrible. Probably a really relatable thing to a lot of people even now in the year 2020. Um, and... But but this is a character that kind of he shows up and kind of is um, he dots throughout the movie. It's kind of one of the thorough lines that run towards th throughout the movie is this character and uh, eventually his relationship with his wife at home. Liam, first, uh, what do you think of of this Murray Futterman character? I know it's funny. I originally had in my notes here that I wanted to talk about his quote unquote playful xenophobia, but in the the context of this movie, he's supposed to be a World War II veteran, someone who has obviously been through a lot in his lifetime. Uh, but what do you? What is your take on this character? It's interesting because I think it's one of the ways that kind of roots. Uh, when I think about this movie, and I think about as you again refer to it as the Norman Rockwell uh, scenery or, or setting. Uh, I said Frank Capra, but you you go. oh you did you did you did you said Frank Capra. <laughs> My point is just this. This is one of those movies you could show to someone and talk about how 
um, the 1980s thought it was the 1950s come back round again. And this is a film that kind of like uh, makes me think about that and how this character is sort of this relic from another time. But his concerns were incredibly there were a lot of people at this time speaking this way. This was a common thing. This wasn't something that just Joe Dante's like, I don't know. He says crazy stuff about foreign cars, blah, blah, blah. That's like a regular thing that people had concerns about. Like there were folks who probably saw this movie and maybe they didn't see themselves, but they definitely saw their uncle or their neighbor or their grandfather, you know? And so um, in in that way, like watching it, it, not that what he's saying isn't a problem, but I think the film uh, does a good job in sort of showing you like, this is a, a lovable guy, but he's from a whole other era. But it's also a reminder that this term gremlin is sort of uh, associated with that time, that there is a mythology from that time that sort of is being made present. Um, And I I do wonder, again, considering, you know, where the Mogwai comes from and where he's found, that whole thing is kind of weird, you know. But I I think in the end, it it all plays into this idea that like um, uh, the what is the what's the billy that billy is sort of the his <laughs> negligence kind of creates this all i mean when the dude shows up at the end he's technically right like you guys are obviously not uh mature enough for oh, this he's more than technically right he's a hundred percent right yeah i mean you know this is just hoyt axton's character just very much saying like uh yeah of course i could take care of this what are those rules again you know and it's just it, he obviously right. is not taking it seriously right but it's just funny how you take it this is also like different seeing it at different times of your life when i was a kid i was like oh he doesn't get to keep uh, gizmo oh man that's a sh- uh, he should get to keep Gizmo. That's sad. And and now as an adult, I'm like, yo, fuck. The whole town is on fire. Multiple people are dead. And they're home with Gizmo like, this is fine. Sure, it went wrong once, but we'll be fine in the future. And then when he shows up, they're like, yeah, I guess you're right, huh? Yeah, all right. I guess you should take him. Like, the, you know, I, I feel like if they were rational humans, they would have already been at the store giving him back. That's what a rational person would do. I also, there's a suggestion, at least, uh, on the radio broadcast with the real Don Steele, where he's talking about how, like, they're arriving with hoses to take care of the problem there. I like just like the idea that maybe even outside of this little town, that things have just gone completely haywire, because it's somehow spread a lot further than anyone could have thought. Uh, back to the topic at hand, uh, Elijah. What, Dick Miller's performance in this, I, I mean, in some ways, it's iconic. It's one of the ones that I think of most immediately when it comes to when I picture his face, I think of him as the Murray Futterman character uh, in a lot of ways. And maybe that just is kind of all blending together with a lot of these 80s roles, maybe like the one in The Terminator and others as well. But what do you think of his performance in this movie? Well, I mean, Dick excelled at playing blue collars, you know, blue collar type. That's what he is. It's like he, he was never cast that far from who he really was. And whether he was uh, a xenophobe or, or not, um, it's sort of inconsequential. I, I think if it's his most iconic role, it's only because it's probably his most famous movie that sure. he's the most, <laughs> rather than Terminator. Um, that's I think that's the only reason why, frankly. Um, you know, his character changed uh, from from part one to part two. That's true. You know, I think they realized that people really responded to both uh, the Futtermans and they made them, well, especially Dick, 
they made him more of a heroic character in the, in the sequel because um, people like him. I mean, he is someone that we can all relate to. One of the things about watching the first Gremlins is that a lot of the people who are getting the worst of the Gremlins are not, if not bad people, because I don't want to put everyone in that category. Certainly the the teacher at the school wasn't doing anything necessarily bad. But, you know, when he pulls out that needle, I'm sure there were a lot of kids in the 80s who were like, ooh, needles, this guy's got to pay. I mean, it just, there's an element where it felt like when watching it that the Futtermans get it a little hard, (laughs) you know, being run over by this giant piece of machinery and it's kind of nice to watch it knowing that that even though it's clear that the intention of the movie is these characters they were killed by the gremlins that joe dante could just flick that switch and be like nope they got away somehow they managed to get away simply because even when the cops are talking about the incident they don't say specifically that they died very comic book thing right if you don't see the body then they must have made it into the sequel yeah i think that i think and if i'm not mistaken you know in gremlins there's some chatter over the radio there's something that was decided um in post or whatever maybe after test screenings that they live so uh there's something in gremlins one i'm practically certain uh if you're listening you'll hear something on the radio like a police radio about about the futtermans so they do survive i mean that's good to know in terms of of the the continuity aspect liam when you watched it do you remember actually as a kid watching it and did you think that these characters would have uh, necessarily made it into a sequel no i was very surprised i mean (laughs) i don't know i don't know how how much attention to detail i paid and and in fact (laughs) there was a sense i had when i saw like i like i said it was 1990 that gremlins 2 came out i think Something mm-hmm. eighty nine, ninety. Something yeah, like it that. is. Uh, it's ninety because uh, this might surprise you, Liam. It's the thirtieth anniversary. I only brought it up a thousand goddamn times. Well, I'm not doing math in my head. The point is, <laughs> what I was trying to remember is my memories. I saw it in the theater, so I was trying to decide. Okay, what year did it come out? Would that have made sense? And and it did. It does make sense. I, my mom took me. I saw it in the theater, and I remember thinking <laughs> while I was watching it, I don't know how well this connects with the last movie. And I was like 11, Doug. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like I was a teenager or in my 20s. You know what I mean? Like, I was 10, 11 years old. And I'm thinking, is this consistent? Does this connect? Is this is this all part? Is this one piece? Or are these unrelated movies? You know, there was a part of me that kind of didn't see the thread there. But I also don't remember caring. I just thought it was <laughs> great. I guess that's that's the real key. It, doesn't really matter, right? It doesn't matter in in the context of what we're watching. Maybe you know it was horrifying to see these characters that were genial and and very nice, certainly as as uh, and <laughs> relatable as a couple get horribly murdered. Well, let's let's put, let's put them in the sequel, and it doesn't really matter what necessarily happened. Elijah, I imagine because you've dipped your uh, finger in a lot of different uh, genre movie type topics that you're at least aware of the fact, I'm sure you were aware anyway, that in the wake of the release of Gremlins, there were a lot of movies that were kind of obviously heavily influenced by them, uh, by its massive success is what I should say. I think some people saw it and were like, that's what people love. They like little creatures running around. That's all you need and your movie can be successful. And frankly, some of the movies that came afterwards kind of bore that out. Do you have any affection for any of the quote-unquote Gremlins ripoffs that came after? No. <laughs> <laughs> No, not with I, I knew it as a kid, you know, it's like, what, what is, what is this? What, what is this? No, I'm not watching Munchies. No, next. But you know, what's funny is Munchies was directed by <clears throat> Tina Hirsch, who edited Gremlins. 
she was um, she was also part of the Corman crew uh, at New World. So uh, she doesn't like the movie either. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I was saying before. The movies for me, Gremlins was just like I watch Gremlins and then I'll watch Critters too, and I'll be like, well, I guess it's just the same sort of thing. And then you go, you grow up ten years, and you're like. Why was I watching Critters two over and over? What was the, I guess it's just what was available to me. Liam, do you have any affection for those uh, those movies that came after? Um, I think just Critters, right? Like, uh, I guess Critters and Critters two. I don't remember Critters three, so I'm going to say no for that. Uh, but Ghoulies is terrible. Le- Le- Every Leonardo Ghoulies. Leonardo DiCaprio was in Critters three. Does that yeah, change your opinion on it at all? No, I don't remember. Uh, right. But but Ghoulies, the Ghoulies movies were awful, and and I don't even remember the other ones after that. Like, yeah, it is true. There's a ton of like puppety movies after this, you know, like mm-hmm. like trying to cash in on that. But I remember watching the first time I watched Ghoulies. I remember thinking, are the Ghoulies <laughs> supposed to be in this? Like Ghoulies, the, the, that movie is a Dungeons and Dragons movie that just happens to have puppets in the background, just sort of observing what's going on. Like barely participating. It's it's. I remember being very upset about it the first time I saw it. <laughs> You're just thinking like Charles Band is just he's watching Gremlins and it's just like hitting him all at once. Little things. That's what I'm going to devote the rest of my career to. Just little things running around all the time. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think the only thing that uh, post Gremlins that I really appreciated were Boglins, those toy <laughs> puppets. Yes. Uh, that's the only thing that I think was really. Uh, beneficial. Oh, yeah. I, I appreciated them right up until the point where I revisited my childhood home and found a rotting piece of rubber. Oh, God. I found one, too. It's like, what is this piece of... I was so stoked when I found mine, and then it was so disintegrated and gross. I was like, oh, I guess these don't have resale value. I'll just focus on this Castle Grayskull instead. Yeah, I still have mine somewhere in a plastic bag that has uh, melded with that plastic bag. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what I liked most about the, and that took a long time, by the way, that was like a couple of years after Gremlins in between Gremlins too. But yeah, that was, that was the only post Gremlins thing that I pop culture wise that I appreciated. Uh, we have gotten to the point now, uh, and, uh, obviously we've, we've hit on a whole lot of different topics, but the thing is, it's, it's hard to talk about Gremlins and cover any territory that hasn't been covered a thousand times before. It's a movie that you should see if you haven't seen it already. And honestly, even if you have seen it, it is one, as I said, when it comes to a lot of these Joe Dante movies, it's one very much worth revisiting, whether it be, uh, you know, seeing, uh, Chuck Jones show up for a scene or whether it's uh, being able to appreciate the performances or maybe appreciate the special effects, which obviously, as you uh, noted, Liam, uh, they were a hassle to put together, but are still incredibly impressive to watch. Uh, My wife didn't think so. She's like, this all looks like garbage. What's the point? My wife doesn't have a (laughs) strong sense of context when it comes to the special effects of the 1980s. I'm like, look, Zach Gallagher has all of this electronics up the back of his shirt. And she's like, I don't care. Why would I care about that? I guess we all watch movies for different things. Uh, Elijah, <laughs> Elijah, any final thoughts on Dick Miller's performance? Or maybe, you know what, let's let's open it up a little bit. Your film has been out for a few years now. Since its release, Dick Miller has sadly passed away. 
one of the amazing things about this movie is that it, it works both as a celebration of his life, but also in some ways as a monument to this actor who's now left us. Uh, do you have any thoughts looking back on the project, uh, you know, kind of in retrospect now that Dick Miller is no longer with us? I mean, I'm, it's, um, it's why you do these sorts of things. I mean, no one lasts forever. Um, and, you know, I, like you, uh, I'm a fan. And, and I wanted something like this to exist. And when someone's gone, uh, you can't make it anymore. So do it while they're around. And I was really happy that not only did Dick get to see it at South by, but he got to see it in Sitges in Spain. He <laughs> saw it at a, a retrospect of all of his movies at New York. And um, he was there for it. And, and you know, we got to make a movie about Dick with Dick. And it was fun. I, I feel very lucky. And, um, and it's something that I think will improve with time. I think that documentaries like this, uh, when everybody is gone, um, you're going to really, people, I hope, will just really appreciate it that it's out there. Absolutely. Invaluable. Like I said, and, and you know, the, as, a, as an entire document, it's something that, I mean, even now, some of the faces that appeared into it have already passed on. Yeah. And, and that's just going, you know, the fact that these stories have now been documented and that these faces are here, tell, people are going to revisit it and have a greater appreciation for it every time that they do. Uh, Liam, any final thoughts on, on Gremlins before we wrap things up here today? Well, I don't want people to think because they know Dick Miller from Gremlins, which is where a lot of people know him from, or like we said, Terminator, things like that, that you know all of his sort of career. You know, like as much as I agree with you, when I think of uh, him as a performer, of course I think of this. This is the first place where he stuck out to me and I remembered him and I thought, oh, this this person, I, I think I've seen him in other things, you know, that sort of feeling. Um you know, we we've only just started this journey and we we're already well aware that that's not the limit of who he, he was as an actor. And so, um, you know, obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, you're of somewhat interest in uh, hopefully <laughs> in the career of, of Dick Miller. But but I encourage you to, uh, you know, jump ahead of us. You know, we're, we're kind of going slow here and, and check out other stuff, because uh, though I do think he is brilliant in this movie, I love him in this role. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to play into the fact that this is sort of also, I think, what some people think of as the limit of of who Dick Miller was, and I don't think that's fair. You know, it's interesting. Over our three episodes so far, we've we've covered uh, the Terror, and we've covered a Bucket of Blood, and now Gremlins. You know, three very different performances, and in really different quality performances in a lot of ways. Uh, and it's it's interesting for us to start from this place before we, you know, before we delve into things that might be a little bit more obscure, but I'm glad that people are taking that trip with us. Elijah, for people who want to check out that guy, Dick Miller, what's the best way for them to do so? Great question. I have no idea. I'm sure it's out there. Um, I, know, <laughs> uh, I know it's on Amazon Prime. I might be on Hulu. Um, uh, I'm sure they've Googled it by now if they're listening to it. So, um, <laughs> Trust the internet. I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll take the pressure off you. I'll put some links uh, in our show notes today about where people can find it. It's currently available and streaming on uh, both Amazon Prime and Tubi.tv, I think, as well uh, for people in the States. But uh, we'll put those links in the show notes. Uh, Elijah, 
are there any projects that you're working on at the moment that you want to uh, maybe push out there? And for people who are interested in what you're working on, what's the best way for them to keep up on it? Oh boy, two very good questions. I'm the I'm the worst self promoter, <laughs> uh, only because I'm too busy to clog the internet with uh, pictures of myself doing things. Um, <laughs> I you know there's stuff. I think I mentioned. I don't know if you were recording yet, but uh, we were. T- we got Amazon Women on the Moon and our Dick Miller mm. performance that he was cut from. Um, uh, that's coming out on Blu-ray, so we're putting together a little piece on that. Um, uh, that's the only thing I could really say. There's a, I guess there's a fan base for Space Invaders. I was never into the movie, although I have more <laughs> appreciation for it now. Um, that has a pretty substantial uh, special edition coming out from Kino here coming up. Um, what else? Uh, there's a really good edition of uh, Milos Forman's hair that's mm. coming out where we got almost the entire cast and a bunch of uh, behind the scenes people talking about that movie. Uh, MGM let us keep in some of the interesting sound bites. Um, God, what else? <laughs> um, there's some other stuff. Uh, that I can never really think of, but uh, um, people want to follow me. I'm not that interesting. I guess I have a Twitter account, uh, and I take pictures of uh, weird abandoned buildings on Instagram. You can find them there, and um, that's about all I can say. <laughs> and you can find a lot of those links over at ElijahDrenner.com as yes. well for people yes, you, who want yeah, to check yes. that Thank you. You're so much better at this than I am. Hey, I have to do it all the time. <laughs> People wouldn't know where to find anything. I uh, will link all that in the show notes as well, so people can find out where, uh, where, what work that you're working on, and also uh, if they want to uh, to check up on what's uh, what's happening next. I, I got to check out this Instagram account now that you've mentioned it. Oh, it's fascinating. <laughs> Liam O'Donnell, you're here with me as well. Uh, I guess people could theoretically follow you on uh, social media as well. What's the best way for them to do that? Well, they should probably just follow uh, Cinepunks the uh, network on which this podcast appears, as well as a, a whole family of other podcasts. Uh, and that's uh, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X <laughs> on all manner of social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. If you want to shoot us an email, it's just that at Gmail. So hit it up. I guess you can follow my personal account at Liam Rules, R-U-L-Z, but I don't know why you'd want to do that. It's pretty good, Liam. It's pretty incendiary, I would say. Yeah, that's yeah, what I, I like guess. most of it. <laughs> uh, you can, of course, if you want to find out more about Cinema Smorgasbord, you can do that at cinemasmorgasbord.com or at cinemasmorg on Twitter. That's S-M-O-R-G. If you'd like to follow me, I'm at the Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. And if you'd like to support the show, wait, the best way to do so is go over to iTunes, give us a review, give us a rating, tell us what we're doing right and wrong and what you want to see and hear next. We're always around, or you can give us feedback through the website as well. But for now, I just want to give a massive thank you to Elijah Drenner for taking time out of what is clearly an extremely busy schedule <laughs> to take uh, to talk about uh, Gremlins, to talk about Dick Miller and his wonderful documentary, which again, I can't recommend enough. Links in the show notes. You better check that out, listeners. Uh, but for now, I think it's time for us to go. We'll be back again with another Dick Miller classic. Good night, everybody.